Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, we're happy to have Professor Colin Gordon on the show. He's a professor of history at the University of Iowa, where, as I've said, I also teach. And we'll be talking to Professor Gordon about his book, Mapping Decline, St. Louis and the Fate of the American City, which has recently been issued by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Uh, the book is fascinating, and it's um, path-breaking in the sense that it uses demographic data in combination with GIS technology to produce really fantastically beautiful maps that tell Professor Gordon's story and the story of St. Louis and its decline, or perhaps we should say transformation. I really enjoyed talking to Colin, and I hope you enjoy listening to the interview. Here it is. Hi, Colin. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Uh, I'm fine. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, Since we're only offices apart, I suspect that uh, we're enjoying the same fine weather here in Iowa. Um, Today we're talking to Colin Gordon, who, uh, in addition to being a professor at the University of Iowa, is also my boss um, here at the University of Iowa in the History Department. We'll be talking to him about his book, Mapping Decline, St. Louis and the Fate of the American City, which just came out from the University of Pennsylvania Press. Uh, It's a beautiful and very impressive book, and we'll get to it in a moment. But first, in our customary fashion, uh, I would like to ask you, Colin, to tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up and where you went to school and how you became into, how you became interested in history and so on and so forth. Uh, sure. I uh, grew up in a small uh, industrial town in southern Ontario. And uh, I think uh, at the time I was going to high school, uh, Ontario had 13 grades in high school, which is uh, <laughs> we no longer have. It's not a joke. 13? Thirteen grades. I don't get it. And the way it worked was you could graduate at the end of grade 12 and go to a community college. Yeah. Or you could go on to grade 13, which would qualify you to go to university. Oh, okay. And uh, what this meant was that your final year of high school, grade 13, was a little bit like what we think of as a first year of university. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, And so you started to specialize more. You know, I took two history classes, two geography classes, that sort of thing. And uh, with some very good teachers in my high school, including ones who, um, you know, were not just the typical uh, football coach filling in as a history teacher, mm-hmm. but people who took uh, the practice of history, um, you know, including the use of primary sources and dealing with competing interpretations quite seriously. Yeah. And I think that's probably when I first became interested. Um, and I wrote, I think, for my grade 13 history paper, some horrendous conspiratorial account of the Watergate crisis, um, <laughs> which is embarrassing me to this day. But um, Do you still have it? Oh, yeah. yeah somewhere, <laughs> I'd like somewhere. to get that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, then I went on to uh, undergraduate at the uh, University of Alberta in Edmonton, uh-huh. um, where I was the first third generation graduate of that fine institution. Really? Well, that's incredible. My grandmother was in the first graduating class. That's amazing. In, in 1915 or something. Yeah. Um, and I did an honors degree in history. And uh, then I went on and did a master's degree at York University under uh, Gabriel Coco. Uh-huh. Uh, Is that where uh, Gabriel Coco taught? I didn't know that. Because he's uh, sort of a famous person, isn't he? Yeah, he taught at, uh, at Penn, actually, for a while. Um, and then he left the United States uh, because of the war. Oh, did he? I didn't uh, know and that. T- yeah, and took up a job teaching at York in Canada. Where Is he was that there. right? I didn't know that. Huh. Um, honored uh, research professor. Yeah, no, sir. He retired fairly recently and now lives in Amsterdam, I think. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, so I did a master's degree with, with him in uh, U.S. foreign policy, who uh, wrote a thesis on U.S. relations with uh, China in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. 
and had the idea that I would continue doing the same thing in a doctoral program, mm -hmm. but immediately came to the conclusion that, you know, if you want to study more than one country, you better read more than one language. Yeah. Um, and I'm not a language guy. Yeah. So I drifted once I got to Wisconsin, where I was doing my doctoral work, into um, more of the history of uh, of American public policy, mm -hmm. and wrote a dissertation on uh, business and the New Deal, mm -hmm. which subsequently became my first book, published by right. Cambridge University Press. And when I finished my graduate work, and uh, like a lot of history graduate students, uh, you know, floundered into the job market, uh, uh -huh. got not a throughout a blizzard of applications, got not a single bite. Yeah, and what year was this? Uh, you don't mind 19, my asking? 1990. Uh -huh. um, and uh, save one on-campus interview at uh, the University of British Columbia, uh -huh. uh, largely by virtue of the fact that um, I was a Canadian, and Canadian universities at that time were um, legally obliged to consider Canadian applicants first. Right. In any higher. Uh-huh. And uh, got the job at UBC and taught there for four years, um, and uh, then moved down to the University of Iowa, where right. I am now. And then went overseas, so to say. After uh, yeah, went abroad. Yeah, went abroad. Yes, that's what we say. That's exactly right. And who did you work with again at uh, Wisconsin? Well, in Wisconsin, I actually worked with uh, Joel Rogers, who was uh, in the law school at the time and uh -huh. is now um, a professor of law, sociology, and political science. Wow. Um, and uh, Joel's a very smart guy, um, not an historian by training, but he was certainly the, the, the person on the ground at Wisconsin that was best equipped to uh, uh, help me with the problems that I was trying to, uh -huh. to grapple with. I see. Okay, that's good. So tell me a bit about your first couple of books, because I know you had two books before Mapping Decline. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I... Uh, write broadly about the history of American public policy and political economy, um, the relationship between business and the state. Uh, my first book, uh, New Deals, was a sort of reinterpretation of the American New Deal, uh, which attempted to show um, how much of the sort of reform agenda of the New Deal was in fact animated by business concerns mm -hmm. about the stability of the economy. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was, it was for the uh, most originally a reinterpretation of the origins of the Labor Relations Act and the Social Security Act mm -hmm. in the U.S. And uh, then what followed from, somewhat logically from the first book, is, is uh, an interest in the politics of health insurance in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, so sort of moving from the Big Bang of, of institutional innovation in American public policy to the big whimper, yeah, <laughs> health insurance. Yes. Um, and it was, a, it was a different kind of project because instead of writing about um, policies that were in place, I was writing about policies that never happened. Mm -hmm. And so the paper trail was a little bit different. Yeah. Um, and it involved more, much more work, not so much in, in government archives than in the archives of uh, the various sort of constituencies and stakeholders which uh -huh. fought this battle over the course of the 20th century. So uh -huh. a lot of social reformers, public health advocates, uh, doctors, uh, insurance executives. What, peri what period did it cover? And it covered uh, the progressive era in the U.S., but you know, roughly 1915 to the present. I see, okay. Which at that time was, um, well, to the present at the time meant uh, up through the sort of Clinton health care debacle. Right, exactly. Uh-huh. So do you have any particular thoughts about um, uh, public insurance in the United States? I mean, what did you learn from that project about uh, this kind of future direction, if I could ask you to predict? I know historians don't like to predict, as my professor well, I, get, I get asked this a lot, and yeah. um, I always offer the same uh, really, really depressing answer. <laughs> okay, I mean, the book ahead. was entitled uh, Dead on Arrival, and yeah. I really think that um, that this is the case. In some respects, the book you know, just over-determines you know, the sort of why no health insurance riddle in the U.S. It just, you know, it's like I sort of pile reason for reason uh, on top of each other um, in such a way as, as, you know, to show how unlikely it was at any point in time. And then, if, you know, if you move to the current point, I think, um, I mean, you have to recognize that 
Western European countries and Canada and others who adopted you know, single-payer national health care systems mm-hmm. did so at a time when health care was not a particularly expensive commodity. Mm-hmm. Um, and most did so at a time when the cost of being sick really amounted to uh, being out of work. I see. And so health insurance you know, in t- before the 1960s was indemnity insurance, that is, it paid your wages. Right. What today we call AFLAC. Yeah. Um, and so I think to to move now to a single-payer system when healthcare is absorbing, you know, 18, 19, 20% of gross national product, mm-hmm. 25% of state budgets mm-hmm. um, is a much more onerous task, mm-hmm. especially in, you know, a sort of famously fragmented and yep. business-driven political yeah. system of the U.S. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, that is uh, that is sort of depressing. I'm a little bit depressed by that, to be honest with yeah. you. I'm glad I, I mean, re- what was interesting in that was that, you know, in the through this 1970s and 80s, and even really into the early months of the Clinton plan, I mean, what, it was a peculiar political setting because one of the foremost advocates of single-payer health care uh, were some big business interests. Mm-hmm. I mean, the big auto companies that have these legacy healthcare costs right. written in union contracts. Right. Um, you know, it was a it was a dream for them the mm-hmm. idea that all of their competitors and all of the pizza huts in the world would help pay their costs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you know, there was a famous joke by a Princeton economist at the time that uh, you know GM was a uh, healthcare plan that sold cars to pay for itself. <laughs> That's pretty much right. And you know, it is pretty much right. And yeah. but we're now at a tipping point where even those firms are choosing no health care over, um, over spreading the cost to their competitors. Right. So will we reach a point in which uh, such a large percentage of the population is uninsured that the, um, the political will will appear to make it happen? I know it's a little um, bit off topic, but I'm just kind of interested. I, I really don't think so. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be death by a thousand cuts that, yeah. you know, we'll go – to higher and higher deductibles and higher and higher co-payments yep. and more and more mm-hmm. sort of catastrophic high deductible plans yep. um, and baser and baser care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's exactly right. Well, let's, uh, that's, yeah, that's uh, suitably depressing. So let's move on to a much cheerier topic, <laughs> <laughs> and that is your book, Mapping Decline, St. Louis and the Fate of American Cities, um, which I have to say – as I was telling you in our pre-interview, is one of the most beautifully produced books I have ever seen. So if the people at the UPenn Press are listening, I would like you to publish my next book. If there is yeah, they, they did a beautiful job. Was, it, it, uh, is, it is incredible happy. because it's, it's multicolor and the maps are absolutely terrific. Uh, it really is a very beautiful book, I, I have to say. I, I, it's, it's astounding how, how nice it looks. So kudos to them. But let's talk a little bit about the... Uh, subject matter itself. Uh, tell us the thesis of the book, since it does have a thesis, actually. Many history books don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, I mean, let me say at the outset that, that the, the argument and the thesis of the book um, is not in any way sort of startlingly original. Mm-hmm. But I think what I do is echo what a lot of people, most notably Tom Chagru and Arnold Hirsch, have concluded about the fate of the American cities grew looking at Detroit, Hirsch at Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, what I saw this book as an opportunity to do was to, uh, in a sense, narrate that um, tale of American urban decline with both close attention to a particular setting over a very long period of time, because I start with uh, really at the beginning of the 20th century, br- bringing it much closer to the present than others have. So it really does... Um, you know, much of the discussion and the data uh, come into this century, um, and to and to basically sort of illustrate that through the use of the GIS mapping in a, in a much more uh, in a much starker and dramatic way than a sort of conventional archivally yeah. driven story could mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the thesis of the book um, is simply that the fate of St. Louis, and by extension, uh, American cities like it, is not a consequence of um, families and individuals making choices uh, in a market, simply saying, uh, yeah, the, the, you know, the city's dirty, I don't want to live there anymore, let's move to the suburbs. What I try and show, you know, blow by blow, is how the population and the resources in the city were sorted um, by public policy, mm-hmm. by actual interventions in the market, which starkly uh, 
provided some citizens with those sorts of choices, but um, denied uh, others the, the, the same sort of freedom to move around the metropolis. Mm-hmm. And it's a story that, you know, in the first instance, is driven by the famously fragmented nature of American cities. Yeah, why don't we talk a little bit about that? Because I think most people are, are completely unaware of that famously uh, right. fragmented. Well, I mean, I think one of the easiest ways to think about it is if you think about a city as a sort of organic economic and demographic entity, um, then the best picture is a city like, I don't know, Paris or Rio. Where do the poor people live? They live where the land is cheap, on the outskirts. Uh-huh. And so, you know, radiating out from the city uh, is cheaper and cheaper housing. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, relative sort of political, economic, and demographic distance from the wealthy core of the city. And right. this is true generally of, you know, Toronto, Rio, London, Paris, you name it. Mm-hmm. Now, American cities are different in part because of their corporate organization. So imagine St. Louis, um, which is, you know, the old central city on the riverfront Mm -hmm. and then all of the suburbs sprawling on the Missouri and the Illinois side. Mm -hmm. Um, That urban region uh, has uh, over 200 general purpose governments overlaying Mm -hmm. it, 12 counties, uh, well over 100 municipalities. Um, and then add to that all the school districts, which don't coincide with any of those boundaries. Yeah. And then you add fire districts and police districts and museum districts and sewer districts. And um, so, you know, it's not only the larger region is fragmented in that way, but if you threw a dart anywhere at that map, you know, where the dart landed would be governed by five or six different uh, government entities. Yeah, I see what you mean. And what that fragmentation gives you is on key elements of local public policy, like economic development and the zoning of land use, instead of planning for the region, it pits these little postage stamp municipalities against each other. Mm -hmm. And for much of the 20th century, what this competition looked like was the little suburban enclaves versus the city. And they were just poaching the city of its Mm -hmm. wealth, uh, its wealthy citizens, its um, economic resources and the like. Mm-hmm. And then as we move into the latter years of the 20th century, it increasingly becomes sort of suburb versus suburb competition, yeah. where the classic competition in St. Louis is, you know, you have these 94 municipalities in St. Louis County ringing the city itself. Mm-hmm. And they play this elaborate game of musical chairs uh, with public money as to who can get the next big mall. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and they're constantly, you know, those malls are leapfrogging out into the cornfields. Um, leaving, you know, behind and abandoned a mall that might be six years old. Right. right. Just because you're crossing a corporate line and somebody else can uh, throw a tax break at somebody. I see. So the general framework for this was something called home rule, which is I was I had associated it with something entirely different. Could you explain the way in which home rule worked in Missouri? Yeah, I mean, home rule is, you know, on at first blush, um, you know, a pretty... uh, noble and American kind of idea. Um, it brings local government uh, close um, and allows uh, small units of government to, um, to to basically set the terms of people's lives. Yeah. Now, but what it means in practice, um, I mean, the idea arose out of a 19th century context in uh, the United States in which cities like St. Louis were perpetually at odds with state legislatures that were run by rural interests mm-hmm. or out-state out interests. And the same thing happened, you know, in Albany, uh, in, uh, you know, Springfield, Illinois. Mm-hmm. Cities, cities just felt they weren't getting what they needed. Uh-huh. And, and part of the problem was that there is no allowance in the American Constitution for a municipal form of government. Mm-hmm. Uh, so municipal forms of government are created by the states, and all of the powers that they have are ceded to them by the states. Mm-hmm. And before home rule, before those local forms of government had substantial autonomy, states had to pass all the legislation. I see. And so if you wanted to extend a sewer line in Cincinnati, it was an act of the Ohio legislature. I see. So there's actually nothing in the Constitution at all that uh, 
says anything about the way municipalities should be organized. No, cities aren't even mentioned. <laughs> in, um, and so it's, this was an, it's a famously sparse document, but... Uh, right. I mean, yeah. So this was an enormous problem, both for cities who, who couldn't get what they wanted from the state legislators, but it was also a problem for the state uh, legislative bodies who spent all of their time you know, extending sewer lines and patching potholes right. by special legislation. Right. So it was in the interest of them both to cede some authority to cities, to allow them to raise some of their own taxes uh, and take some more direct responsibility for the local welfare. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But what, um, one consequence of this was that it tended to freeze the boundaries of cities at the moment the home rule was granted. Uh-huh. So St. Louis, which is a, about a 60-square-mile uh, crescent, on the Mississippi, um, which, you know, relatively small by municipal standards. Boston is 40 square miles. Mm-hmm. You know, Jacksonville, Florida is 800 square miles. Right. Um, it was granted home rule in 1875. Mm-hmm. What this meant was that it ran its own affairs. St. Louis is a city and a county. It, it has, serves both functions. Sure. But that new, new municipalities could crop up around its borders and set different rules. Um, and claim home rule for themselves. So couldn't St. Louis uh, expand itself? Couldn't it say, we're going to annex this territory here? Or Well, not, uh, not by fiat. Uh-huh. I mean, different states have different rules as to how cities grow. Uh-huh. And this is why some American cities, particularly the newer ones in the south, southwest, do um, just sprawl across the desert. Uh-huh. So L.A. and Jacksonville and you know, Houston, these are all huge cities uh-huh. in square miles. Yeah. But older cities, St. Louis, Chicago, uh, Boston, mm-hmm. their corporate boundaries were sealed by home rule. I see. And the, those who lived outside the city limits had no interest in being annexed. Mm-hmm. And most annexation statutes require some sort of mutual agreement. Mm-hmm. And so what would happen was would, you know, some enterprising developer would go out into the county They'd build a strip of nice homes, what mm-hmm. we today call a subdivision. Mm-hmm. Um, they'd, the subdivision itself would have elaborate rules attached to the deeds, saying, you know, no blacks can live here. The houses have to be a certain size. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, no glue factories, whatever. You know, mm-hmm. no commercial districts. They would just create these little enclaves, what used to be called streetcar suburbs, because mm-hmm. they ran out from the streetcar lines. Mm-hmm. And then they were, you know, sort of unleashed from that by the automobile revolution and they could locate anywhere and they just started sprawling across the counties. Mm-hmm. But what this meant was that, that those, frag, those fragments of which there's 94 crowding St. Louis's western border mm-hmm. could all independently say, well, we're only going to have large lot single family housing. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, uh, you know, and, until the, 19, the early 1950s when this was disallowed, we're also going to have deeds on property which say no blacks can live here. Mm-hmm. And so they, they would have these, these sort of rigid set of rules. They would, in a sense, compete with each other. Mm-hmm. Now, locally, I mean, it was a, and it was a classic sort of collective action problem because locally, right. you know, you have a group of 80 properties. It begins as a subdivision, then you incorporate as a town. And, of course, you want the rules to say, we don't want smaller houses. We don't want apartment buildings. Sure. We don't want factories. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're doing that on the assumption that all of those things which are needed in the region will be located somewhere someplace else. Someplace else, yeah. But as every suburb set the same rules, someplace else was always the city. Yeah, that is a classic collective action problem. Right. Yeah, that, that... And see, the city faced a very different set of circumstances because zoning uh, of land use was not accepted uh, practice in the U.S and was not really constitutional until the Uh mid-1920s. And what that meant was when cities like St. Louis zoned, they were just describing what was already there. Uh They couldn't plan how the land was used. Um, And so they just said, well, this is sort of what we'd like to use, Uh like the city to look like, and it would be mostly descriptive. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that there was any planning, there were all sorts of non-conforming uses. Right. Um, and they had no choice but to but to do it that way. Mm-hmm. So they were at you know this this disadvantage from the start. Mm-hmm. I see what you mean. Yeah. So uh, are most city, most old cities in the United States have this kind of patchwork look? Um, yeah, St. Louis is actually a little bit worse 
because of the peculiarity of its original home rule provision. Uh-huh. I mean, Chicago is in Cook County. Uh-huh. Pittsburgh is in Allegheny County. Uh-huh. Um, but St. Louis is not in a county. It's its own county. It's its own county, yeah. Right. Um, and what that means is that there is, from the outset, no uh, larger I see. corporate body mm-hmm. that gives any thought to regional planning. I see. Yeah. I mean, you know, Cook County uh, will, for example, think about where the streetcars run, you know, whether it will allow um, new municipal incorporations within its boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will think of those things in reference to both what the city, what the old city needs, and what the suburbs want. Mm-hmm. But St. Louis County, which is what is carved out of, um, well, St. Louis is carved out of St. Louis County. And so you get St. Louis City, which is a city and a county, mm-hmm. and then St. Louis County, which is just a county mm-hmm. um, on its western border. And it, its responsibility, it, it doesn't care a whit about the city, mm-hmm. the old city. Yeah, I see what you mean. It represents solely the interests of the suburban municipality. Right, so there's no supervening authority other than the state itself above all these uh, right. and the state 95 is not at all municipalities. Yeah. Right, and the state is not at all interested. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, that is uh, really quite a nightmare, and it is a huge uh, sort of public goods problem. I see what you mean. Now, you tell the story of a place called The Ville, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about The Ville? Yeah, uh, St. Louis, um, as a sort of border city, uh, has an earlier and more well-established African-American population than, say, a city like Detroit or Chicago. Um, uh, a sort of uh, middle-class, professional um, pocket of African-American settlement on the north side of St. Louis, uh, which is well-established by World War I. What, um, what happens to that area over time is, is really in some respects, the sort of central narrative of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because when African-American migration north uh, begins to take again in preparation for world uh, Well, no, no, let me back up. Um, there's a big race riot in East St. Louis in 1917 mm-hmm. that scares the bejesus out of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the St. Louis City Council tries to do along and they're mimicking what's happening in a couple of other border cities including Baltimore at the same time is they pass a zoning ordinance in 1915-16 which is explicitly racial in its language and its purpose mm-hmm. it uh it basically says there's a small pocket of the city in which African Americans live the ville uh, there's a sort of middle class yeah the ville and there's a couple of other small pockets where African-Americans live in, in sort of substandard housing on the riverfront. Mm-hmm. We propose to zone the city in such a way that that's the only place they can ever live. Mm-hmm. And how do they do and that? It's just a purely conventional zoning ordinance, but, but instead of setting things like you know setbacks and lot size, right. all, it, all it said was if the area is 75% African-American, then it is considered an African-American area. Uh-huh. And if it's 75% white, it's a white area, and the two shall not mix. I see. And then they, you know, they drew a map which had these three or four little boxes on it where, where blacks are allowed to settle. Uh-huh. And they instructed, One real- of which- they instructed realtors then to say, okay, you can't really settle any more white people over here, you can't settle any more black people over here. Is that- well, that, that came next. Okay. I mean, initially it was, just, it was just the law of the city. It was zoning. Okay. And so it was non-conforming use under city law uh-huh. to, to live in certain parts if you were of the wrong color. Right. Um, but the Supreme Court threw these statutes out in 1917, the St. Louis one and, and uh, one in Louisville, Kentucky, and, and uh, I think one other was attached to the suit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was in the wake of that that the real estate industry filled the breach and said, well, if we can't have a zoning law which does this, then we'll do it as a matter of, of uh, the practice of private realty. I see. And so they took exactly the same areas of the city, and they defined them as what they called an unrestricted area. I see. Meaning you can sell to anyone mm-hmm. in these small pockets of the city. And this, was, you, this was just collu- this was just collusion among the realtors. Um. Well, I mean, it wasn't collusion in the sense that it wasn't secret. I see. Okay. Yeah, I didn't. I mean, I didn't, this was yeah. this was a public declaration of I principle. See. Okay. And this also came at a time. And you have to realize that the American real estate industry, you know, up the line to the National Association of Real Estate Boards until the early 1960s, had as the core of its code of ethics um, 
uh, not selling to what he called inharmonious racial groups. Mm -hmm. That is, a realtor could never be responsible for introducing uh, a black person into a white neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Technically, vice versa as well, but of course, that's not what the Mm -hmm. the ethics meant. Mm -hmm. So what the realtors did quite publicly, they said, okay, here's a map of the city. Here's the box in which we uh, will um, entertain land transactions that involve African Americans, but nowhere else. And if you do it anywhere else, you lose your license. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they followed this, and so this came on on the heels of both the failure of the zoning ordinance, but also of the the sort of fears that followed the race riot in East St. Louis. Right. They started going door to door in North St. Louis in the white neighborhoods Mm -hmm. um, and said, look, there's a black neighborhood, you know, three blocks that way. And it will expand unless you sign this agreement. And they mm-hmm. started cobbling together these restrictive agreements, mm-hmm. which attached um, a rider to the deed of property, mm-hmm. what was known commonly as a restrictive deed covenant. Yeah, the covenants, yeah. Um, and which uh, bound the owner of the property in a contract, in a three-way contract with his neighbors um, and with the real estate industry. Mm-hmm not to allow that property to to be sold, leased, rented, or occupied by African Americans mm-hmm. uh, for a period, you know, these they had a sunset of like 23 years or something. And, how, how, and then did, they were, how did it bind them? What were the consequences of violating this um, rule? Um, well, it was, it was a, uh, a freely entered into uh, private contract. Right. right. Um, so they sued in civil court then? Uh, yep. And yep. the... Um, Successfully, always. Yeah. And the, the, the state would uphold, you know, the contractual terms. Got it. And the um, what they did in St. Louis is they went door to door sort of scaring people into signing these agreements. Um, but because of the peculiarities of the law, the agreements were only considered valid if a supermajority of property owners in the given area signed them. Mm-hmm. But if you only had, you know, 50, 60 percent, it wasn't much of a restrictive agreement. Mm-hmm. So what the realtors did is as soon as they got, you know, to the end of the street where racial transition was taking place and people were like, well, I don't want to sign, they'd just say, fine, that's it. They'd file the agreement with 40 properties, mm-hmm. and then they'd cross the street and start drafting another one. Mm-hmm. So in the end, by the late 1920s, there were almost 400 of these agreements <laughs> wow. covering 40 to 80 properties apiece Incredible. across the city. Yeah. And they really fell into two patterns. One, there was a set of... of sort of original deed covenants on high-end property, mostly on the south side of the city, uh-huh. where it was just taken for granted that the only black people were your servants. Uh-huh. But on the north side, which is a sort of working-class German uh, neighborhood, these agreements were all largely defensive in nature. They weren't in the original deeds. They were put together in this door-to-door campaign in uh-huh. the 1920s, uh-huh. and they created this sort of ragged crescent that surrounded the ville, the old African-American neighborhood. Uh-huh. Is as a mean way of preventing it from expanding. Uh huh. Uh huh. But it did eventually expand, though. Yes. Yes. Yes, it did. Now, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. The. I mean, I guess one. I mean, one of the original arguments of the book, I think, is is the way in which it argues for the centrality of these deed covenants in determining much of what would follow. Uh huh. So people have looked at other cities and looked at the way in which the federal government insured mortgages and sort of private practices of realtors and the civil rights era and talked about a sort of later pattern of discrimination. Mm-hmm. But what's remarkable about both these deed covenants in the city and in the suburbs is the degree to which a whole range of other public policies leaned on them. Mm-hmm. And so when cities were zoning, particularly suburban settings, uh, started zoning in the 1930s and 40s, um, what the, the correspondence behind their original zone plans basically said we have a restrictive deed covenant. It expires in 1954. We better incorporate and zone the town before that happens. Mm-hmm. And so large lot single-family zoning became effectively the way to to maintain the restriction, no longer in explicitly racial terms, but mm-hmm. now done just by economic mm-hmm. barriers. Mm-hmm. And then the same thing happened in the city. When it first drafted its zone plan, uh, its very first zone plan in 1918, which was never really enacted, yeah. is nevertheless instructive because the city planners run around and said, okay, there's a neighborhood that has a very solid restrictive covenant on it, so we can zone it first residence, uh-huh. which was their highest category. Yeah. And if you look at the zone plan for 1918 or the one for 1925 for the city, in fact, 
their high-end residential districts corresponded perfectly with those uh, with the boundaries of the of the deed covenants. Uh-huh. I see what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> and then in um, when the federal government became involved during the New Deal in housing markets, particularly uh, through their willingness to insure private mortgages, mm-hmm. they just relied on the local uh, realty industry mm-hmm. to tell them where the good neighborhoods were. Mm-hmm. And so the Federal Housing Administration, well into the 1950s, considered a restrictive deed covenant to be an ideal form mm-hmm. of private protection, mm-hmm. not only for the neighbors, but for the federal money invested in the neighborhood. Uh-huh. I see. It was a good sign. And so when they went in and raided neighborhoods, and they went, you know, it was an elaborate federal effort where they would go into a city and make these elaborate color-coded maps of which were the risky neighborhoods for yeah. federal insurance and which weren't. Mm-hmm. Their primary criteria was, have any blacks moved in yet? Right, right. I see what you mean. So how are these... Um how were the covenants and other restrictions eventually broken? Why did they break, I guess I would say? Why was it the case that the Ville was able to expand in the way that it was? Well, I mean, partly what happened was there was, there was enormous pressure on the housing stock uh, because you have this, this sort of iron circle of restriction in North St. Louis. Um, very few um, residential opportunities for African Americans. And then you get a massive in-migration in response to the labor demands of World War II. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they move where they can, but there are far too many moving in that, that, uh, to be accommodated by the existing racially segregated housing stock. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so what happens in these neighborhoods is, you know, you get, you get at the edge, at this sort of transitional edge of uh, these neighborhoods, um, African-Americans would move, you know, sort of three to a room uh, into the only area they were allowed to, yeah. to uh, live. This put tremendous stress on the housing stock in the neighborhood, and the whites at the edge of that transition would look for ways to get out. Yeah. And what's interesting about this sort of legal challenge to the whole restrictive deed covenant uh, structure was that it first came from whites. Mm-hmm. So in the 1930s, there's a whole raft of cases in St. Louis where people would basically come to court, and these are great cases because the, because the archival, uh, the exhibits are, are still there in the archives. Mm-hmm. People would come to court with photographs, with hand-drawn maps of their neighborhoods, mm-hmm. you know, basically labeled with the N-word right. <laughs> on a parcel-by-parcel basis, saying, yeah. "Look, look, they're here." Yeah. You know, you got, and what they were arguing was, "You can't hold me to a neighborhood scheme of restriction that has collapsed." Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so bit by bit, uh, you know, some of the cases were won, some were lost, uh, but bit by bit the neighborhoods started to turn. And when they turned, you know, it was like the breaking of a dam. They yeah. just went completely. One of the things that surprised me about uh, the St. Louis case, and again, I have to confess my ignorance about uh, urban history in general, especially in the United States, was that um, both what we call blight or urban decay and white flight began much earlier than I thought they did. I thought of them as a sort of post-World War II phenomenon, but you show uh, that this isn't the case, that they actually start quite early. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, St. Louis is, again, a little bit exceptional. I mean, the classic story, you know, of a Detroit or Chicago um, is, as you suggest, about the inability to sustain World War II-era growth. Mm-hmm. Um, but St. Louis is a, is a funny setting because it's already... Um, you know, in decline early in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Partly when, you know, when it loses the battle with Chicago to become the railroad gateway. Mm-hmm. Um, it remains a river economy. And for that reason, it has more in common with cities like uh, Cincinnati and Buffalo, mm-hmm. um, you know, other sort of river-based economies mm-hmm. whose economic strengths really belong to the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, St. Louis has some pockets of economic strength later. Uh, there's this sort of big, uh, it becomes a big trucking depot mm-hmm. um, and uh, builds a bit of an aerospace industry around yep. the airport mm-hmm. uh, during the Cold War. But other than that, St. Louis is pretty consistently seen as a declining economic area dominated by old uh, family firms. Um, you know, packers and brewers mm-hmm. and, and uh, steel companies and and uh, brickyards, mm-hmm. um, which which are really not you know at the leading edge of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's earlier in St. Louis, and in that respect, you know, the um, World War II boom is sort of a hiccup in St. Louis's history. Right, because you have lots of interesting quotes of people in the 1920s and 1930s talking about blight in in downtown St. Louis, saying that there's you know we really have to do something about this because right. you know people are leaving and industries are closing and they're you know vast areas of the city look as if they are you know not to use the cliche but bombed out. I mean I guess we don't have the bombed out cliche until World War II, but uh, they 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 look dilapidated and, and blighted and and people are right. actually thinking about this, but they're not, un- unable to do anything at that time. And also if we could go back to um, white flight, it seems that uh, you know that these German immigrants and so on and so forth were leaving um, in the 1930s. Would we say? Um, yeah, I mean it, it, it. I mean the ability of white, the white working class, to live outside the city boundaries mm-hmm. um, is really just determined by the availability of housing and of transport. Because mm-hmm. for the most part, before World War II, they're still working in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, once but once the automobile uh, is more readily available, mm-hmm. and once and a subdivision proceeds, mm-hmm. you know, over the western boundary, then those opportunities are, to, to get out are are, um, are pretty dramatic. And of course, once the federal government gets into the mortgage insurance game, then suddenly um, it becomes uh, financially possible as well. Mm-hmm. So, as the city declines economically, uh, these Im- these German immigrants or their sons and daughters start to leave the city. They take advantage of federal policies that allow them to purchase homes in the suburbs. The people in the ville themselves, that is the blacks that are downtown, have often lost their jobs, I might understand that, and are unable to move to these places? Yes. I mean, I mean, industrial employment in St. Louis very nearly peaks in 1945. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's like Detroit and other cities in that way. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, the economic opportunities for African-Americans are still better in St. Louis than they are in Alabama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so migration from the South continues, you know, on a sort of community family basis. You mm-hmm. know, someone knows someone who lives somewhere and has a place where you can stay and look for a job. Right. Um, and so, you know, St. Louis, you know, just like uh, uh, Chicago and Detroit, continues to attract African-American migrants right. uh, long after its employment base is, is absorbing them on a reliable basis. Right, right. I see what you mean. So... Uh, as you point out in the book, uh, there are repeated attempts by seemingly well-meaning people to initiate some sort of urban reform, and these fail again and again. Can you talk a little bit about why these programs failed? I, um, you think about the urban renewal programs particularly? Or? Yeah, the urban renewal programs, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I, mean, I mean, I think they failed in part because I'm not sure I would characterize them all as well-meaning. Okay. <laughs> well, um, all right. I mean, they were well-meaning in the sense that they were um, they were invested in the city. They weren't sort of giving up on the city. Um, they were, uh, but but I think a lot of the failure uh, rests on their unwillingness to really address what had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the fascination of urban renewal advocates um, once sort of large-scale renewal becomes possible. Um, really amounts to uh, raising low-income housing mm-hmm. and putting up baseball stadiums. Right. Uh, because this is, is an effort largely driven by sort of downtown booster-type interest. Yeah. Uh, you know, the people who own the downtown department stores and hotels mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. They're the ones that are invested in, in, in trying to get keep people and resources closer to the center of the city. Uh-huh. Um, and their notion of doing that really has nothing to do with the low and working class uh, residential base. Uh-huh. I see. And so much of what much of urban renewal does is um, is destroy housing stock yep. um, and replace it with often half-hearted commercial development. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the um, in St. Louis. Particularly, and this is a pattern you see elsewhere. What happens is, you know, this begins very early, mm-hmm. and every time a neighborhood is sort of wiped out in the name of, of some sort of, uh, you know, edifice that uh, will save downtown. Yeah, the people who had lived there move a couple of blocks over. Yeah, and then that is the na- next neighborhood that is identified as blighted because too many people live there in right. in squalor. Uh-huh. Um, and you see this pattern in the series of maps in the book that yeah. trace. 
clear. Um, I mean, what's remarkable, I think, about St. Louis is not just the story of white flight, but it's a story of black flight, too. Yeah, no, I was about to ask about that, and this is not something we're usually familiar with, black flight. I used to live, um, interestingly enough, in D.C., where uh, we have, I think, one of the first, at least, best-known instances of black fight, and that's in Prince George's County, which is basically an all-black county. It's, it's the, 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 you know, the black middle class lives there. But these are largely people that left D.C. after it went downhill in the 60s, after the riots right. and so on and so forth, and they set themselves up in P.G. County, where they live very comfortably. It's a very nice area. So if you could talk a little bit about that in the St. Louis context, I'd appreciate it. Well, the, I mean, the St. Louis context is interesting, because what, I mean, first of all, you know, a capsule sketch of the sort of demographic history of the African-American population would look like this. You have a pocket of middle class um, occupancy in the Ville, set very early in the 20th century. And then you have pockets of sort of working class um, African American um, residents along the riverfront, Mm -hmm. people who are working on the docks and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then out in the county, long before it's developed and subdivided and suburbanized, there are also pockets of African American development, old railroad communities mining communities, old free black communities, there's three or four of them mm-hmm. out in the county that, that predate really any uh, white suburbanization. Yeah. So that's what it looks like, say, as of 1920. Mm-hmm. The first thing that happens in St. Louis is they clear the site for the Jefferson Memorial. Mm-hmm. Um, on that site, roughly 15,000 African-Americans lived. Wow. Um, and they move, you know, just west into uh, the city, putting stress on you know, a very restricted housing market and create, in a sense, the incentive for uh, the next big urban renewal effort, which is the stadium, Mm -hmm. which is cleared in the early 1950s, and a neighboring rail bed known as Mill Creek Valley. Mm -hmm. And that's so these are the major areas of African, of poor African-American settlement in the city, Mm -hmm. and they're raised in the Mm mid-1950s. On the one side, a baseball stadium is built. On the other side, nothing is built. Mm Mm-hmm. And the Mill Creek Valley, you know, earns the moniker Hiroshima Flats oh, because it just sits there empty, right. growing weeds for uh-huh. 10 years. Uh-huh. So but what happens to all the people who live there? Well, first of all, you know, in one respect, we don't know because no one kept track and no one provided them any resources. Mm-hmm. In another respect, we do know because we can we can follow on the map the movement of the African-American population a little bit north and a little bit west in the mm-hmm. city. Um, which then results in substantial white flight from that part of the city, mm-hmm. uh, and then the identification of that part of the city, now what we call the West End or Forest Park area in St. Yep. Louis, as blighted and the next target for urban renewal. Mm-hmm. So there's a sort of head of the bulldozer pattern I see, yeah. in the city. Mm-hmm. Now the principal area of African-American population in greater St. Louis is outside the city boundary. Is that right? Um, in a sort of cr- small crescent that runs from the northwest corner of the city out to the airport. Uh-huh. And it's in, it, that is now the principal area. And um, I mean, since ni- the mid-1970s, uh, black flight has been as pronounced as white flight. Yeah, exactly. So this uh, has had an interesting demographic effect, and actually you can see it quite clearly in the beautiful maps in the book, and that is that um, I'll exaggerate here for the, uh, for, just to make the point that nobody lives in St. Louis proper anymore. But I mean, yeah, I mean, the St. Louis, the population of the city, the, the sort of corporate entity of St. Louis City, came close to 900,000 at the 1950 census, uh-huh. and it's now under 300,000. Yeah, that's quite crazy. So who lives there now? Um, well, the south side of St. Louis um, is is uh, still very much as it was, you know, 50 years ago, uh-huh. um, and that's where most of the the sort of more stable residents. This is, you know, almost entirely white. Yeah. Um, the north side of St. Louis, by contrast, I mean, you have census tracts that have gone from 10,000 people to 800. Yeah. And the housing stock is largely gone. Yeah. 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 Um, and so that's where the real devastation is. Uh-huh. And if you drive into St. Louis, you know, either just in the highway that comes north of Forest Park or in the highway that loops in from the north, you see this. Um, ro- street after street of... Uh, uh, boarded up or burned out, mm-hmm. you know, beautiful brick Victorian homes, yeah. uh, closed factories, weedy lots. Yeah, yeah. no, I know what you mean. I've, I've, I've seen it myself. One of the things that I found interesting in the book uh, is that it was my impression that um, when you see an empty lot, that the city had taken these houses down. But uh, as I think you say in the book, that's not usually the case. 
they've been plundered. Is that correct? By people yeah, I mean, selling usually, the materials. I mean, in a, in a city like St. Louis, um, there's there are a few pockets of large-scale renewal where they'll take all the houses in the Milk Creek Valley and they'll knock them down to put something else up eventually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But on the north side, which was the most persistently um, the area most persistently identified as blighted. Uh-huh. The residential north side. It was also the area that that uh, nothing was ever done about. Yeah. And so what the city would do is they say, oh, people are leaving. You know, we have this horrendous poverty and unemployment on the north side. Mm-hmm. Why don't we build a new hockey arena downtown? <laughs> right. Uh-huh. And you know, and so nothing's really done on the north on the uh, north side. And what happens there as a pattern is. Um, People leave, houses are abandoned, they're burned, they go to the city in the form of back taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they go on the rolls of the city's land reclamation authority. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, over time, someone will come in and take the bricks, someone will come in and take right. all the copper right. pipe. Yeah. And when the, and when the building itself is such an eyesore or a danger, uh, the city will come in and, and knock it down. Uh-huh. Um, you know, fill in the existing basement and, and just let it go to weeds. And oh, that's the basic pattern. Remarkable. That's just remarkable. That's, yeah. No, and, and as I say, for those of you who are interested in reading the book, and I recommend it highly, there are a lot of very good maps that show this kind of thing uh, in the book in a beautiful multicolor format, thanks to the University of Pennsylvania Press. I have a couple of more questions, and in in one, one is about, uh, one is more personal, and one is about methods. The personal okay. one is this. Uh, can you tell me anything about the suburb of Kirkwood, its history? Or, or what it is like, and the reason I ask is I have a cousin that lives there, or some cousins that live there. My uncle lives there as well, and I've never visited him there. I don't know anything about Kirkwood. Um, yeah, I can say a little bit about it. I mean, if you look at the suburbs of St. Louis, there are uh, four or five municipalities in St. Louis County on the west end of St. Louis uh-huh. that were incorporated relatively early in the 20th century, uh-huh. and Kirkwood is one of them. Yeah. Um, so. Kirkwood is not, technically speaking, a suburb in its development uh-huh. of St. Louis. It was it was a town that was eventually surrounded I see. by suburbanization. I see. Okay. Um, so it has a slightly older pattern of land use. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I'm sure it's on one of the railroad lines coming out from St. Louis, uh-huh. um, and which means that you know, on a small scale, it has uh, some of the same characteristics of the city itself, uh-huh. smaller lots, more mixed land use, more uh-huh. industrial use, that sort of thing. Uh-huh. I see. Okay, good. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and Go cities like Kirkwood, however, um, immediately started playing the same game as their suburban neighbors uh-huh. when they saw what large lot single-family zoning could do. Right. Um, and often, in a city like that, whose land use was determined before it was zoned, they might still go in as they did in a couple of instances, and say, um, okay, the whole town is uh, single-family. Uh-huh. Because then what this enabled them to do was um, then they would go into, you know, the factories and the golf courses and the convenience stores, mm-hmm. and they say, okay, you have an exception. Right. But it allowed them to control land use mm-hmm. um, and make sure that no more apartment buildings were built. Interesting. You know, I see. I see. I'll, I'll pass it on to my cousins and uncle. I'm sure they don't know anything about Kirkwood, uh, even though they live there. Um, and then my final question has to do with, um, well, it's actually not my final question, but uh, the penultimate question, as I believe is proper to say, has to do with the, me- the, the sources that you used and the GIS technology. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because one of the things that's really uh, quite interesting about the book is that the number of very detailed and very beautiful maps in the book that are built with what I think is uh, some sort of quantitative data and mm-hmm. this GIS mapping technology. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, the GIS mapping, uh, the easiest way to think about it is to think of it as a sort of spatially defined database. Mm-hmm. And so it's a rich collection of data um, that sits underneath the map. Mm-hmm. And you can bring to the surface of the map for display anything you want or mm-hmm. any combination of things you want. Mm-hmm. So if I have a map of, you know, well, take a, just assume a map of the entire region. Mm-hmm. Sitting beneath that map, are all the zone districts for all the municipalities, mm-hmm. um, census data for every year since 1900. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that, of course, you can do you know any variety of demographic measures, mm-hmm. percentage population, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, political data, such as the boundaries of urban renewal zones mm-hmm. or um, uh, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then often um, sort of specific pinpoint data, like uh, the addresses of, of 
homes that were covered by restricted deed code. Uh-huh. I see what you mean. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then, so you sit there with all that data underneath the map, uh-huh. and you bring to the surface whatever it is uh-huh. you want to show, or whatever combination of things you want to show. Uh-huh. So, uh, part of part of the um, the benefit of the of the both the technology and the method is it enables you to display things like, say, percent of African-American population by yeah. census tract mm-hmm. in ways that are, you know, that are much clearer than a, than a narrative description would yeah. be. Uh-huh. No, absolutely. But as importantly, yeah. it enables you really in an instant to layer that with something else, mm-hmm. like, well, let's see where the deed covenants were, or let's see where the urban renewal lines were drawn, mm-hmm. or how did the boundaries of the blighted areas compare with the, with the boundaries of areas that were over 75% occupied by blacks? Right. You know, well, exactly. Um, right, and so this and, enables you to correlate things which you know you wouldn't necessarily see in tabular data. Right, yeah. and so it, and and the important thing I think is it enables you to do you know you, that's done both in the final product for the benefit of the reader. Uh-huh. You know, look at the way these two things sit alongside each other. Uh-huh. But it's also an important part of the research because you know, unlike the old sort of laborious hand drawing of maps and yeah. laying over of onion skin transparency. Yeah. What I'm able to do is sit at the computer and say, well, um, you know, what if I what if I looked at it this way? What if I pulled to the surface, you know, a dot representing any every 25 people who left yeah. the census tract mm-hmm. that year? Mm-hmm. And then I say, well, that doesn't quite show what I want to show. Let's make the dots equal 50 people, mm-hmm. and uh, let's sh- let's you know put a transparency over that that shows you know some sort of segregation index. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can play with it in that way, bouncing things back and forth until you you know um, until you arrive at a combination which yeah. is you know, both analytically interesting and visually pleasing. Visually pleasing, yeah, that's exactly right. No, I thought that the uh, maps themselves just uh, told the story beautifully. And, um, you know, I think that kind of visual teaching or uh, visual uh, analysis is, is something that, um, well, you're certainly on the forefront of it, and I, I would like to see much more of it in history books, although historians don't usually draw and they're not terribly computer adept, but you certainly are. And, uh, and you know, the, the, uh, the consequences are really... You know, uh, it, it's a, it's a. Mo- I mean, I suspect that the book will be used. I hope the book will be used in lots of graduate methodology classes because I've, 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 I've seen these sorts of maps before, but only, to be quite honest with you, in marketing departments, <laughs> where right. they I love mean, this stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's interesting because if you go to any of the public GIS sites where you can start playing with your own data, yeah. You know, of which Google Maps is one because yeah, sure. you can now pull a lot of data into that on your own. Yeah. The class, the kind of data that is conventionally available uh-huh. is, you know, flat screen TVs by right. zip code. No, I've worked things with this like myself. That. No, that's exactly right. Yeah, number of Twinkies eaten per capita. Right. You know, so, SUV purchasing. Yeah. You know, so the interesting thing about this was it was really a matter of getting a lot of uh, stuff that was sort of locked in paper maps in archives. Yeah. Rendering them digitally uh-huh. so that you could use them in this way. Uh-huh. And what you know, this was one of the reasons why I chose St. Louis. Uh-huh. You know, on I mean, partly I chose St. Louis because it's this dramatic and depressing case of urban yeah. decline. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also an interesting legal setting because the three key um, Supreme Court cases on um, race and real estate uh-huh. are all St. Louis cases. Uh-huh. The covenant cases, yeah. Um, and then finally, the largest urban planning firm in the country is a St. Louis-based firm. Really? And they wrote the city plans and corresponded with city officials about zoning and what zoning was supposed to accomplish. Uh-huh, I see. And all their, all of that is available in the Washington uh, University Archives. That's amazing. That's a, that's a so great... under normal circumstances, you go into a project like this, you know, and you write the city clerk of, of Kirkwood, Missouri, and you say, uh, do you have your 1955 zone map? Uh-huh. They don't even have their 2004 zone map. <laughs> all, you know, they keep the current one, they throw everything else away. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, local governments have no archival, yeah. you know, resources or responsibility. Right. But in this case, there was a sort of centralized record uh-huh. of all of the local government decision-making on uh-huh. these key policies. Right, I see. So did you have to, when you found, for example, the real estate, the multicolored real estate maps and the these sort of fire insurance maps and these kinds of things, did you have to hand code those? Um. Yes. I suspect you did, yes. And yeah. how, how does it, one do that? It sounds very laborious. Well, there's a couple ways of doing it. I mean, not only did I have to do that with the real estate maps, but um, I had to do it with every census map before 1970. Right. Yeah, right. Because they weren't in digital form. Exactly, and so yeah. basically what you can do, with, a good example is the zoning maps. 
I could get from most of these municipalities their current zoning map in GIS uh-huh. in a digital form because they use it. Yeah. Um, and then it would just be a matter of, of editing it backwards. Uh-huh. So I'd have a paper map beside me and I'd say, okay, well, this single family zone changes its boundaries in this way. Uh-huh. And you just sort of move the corners of the zones around until you get the 1960 or the 1950 or the 1940 version. Uh-huh. 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 Now, in some cases, like the the federal um, uh, insurance stuff, mortgage insurance stuff, mm-hmm. that was just the paper map in the National Archives, and it had to be drawn from scratch. Exactly. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. So how long? But I was going to say, you know, I, you, what you do when you're doing that is you you pull up underneath your map a street map, uh-huh. and that gives you all the reference points right. you need. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. You know, I see how that would work. So, how long did it take you to become very um, adept at using the GIS technology and all the mapping technology? Was it difficult? Um, it's a steep but short learning curve. Yeah. I mean, the, the GIS program I used is infamous for being the Windows program that uses the most resources. <laughs> and so, um, you know, you, the, first, the first time around I was using your Peter that would just crash every 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they've, they've tweaked it and, and uh, you know, I now have a slightly better computer, and it works. And everything works very well. But these are very large databases. Yeah. Uh huh. No, I know you. Mean. Um, you know, I work with a database of this of St. Louis County property uh-huh. that has 300,000 pieces of property in it. Yeah. And for each piece of property, it has, you know, 30 pieces of information. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but it's a pretty user-friendly interface, yeah. and you know, if you have some familiarity and comfort with spreadsheets and databases. Yeah. Um, then you know, I would say maybe it, it took my it took me three four months to become comfortable. Yeah. Um, and then you know, because I'm at a large research university, I was able, you know, at crucial points to phone somebody in urban planning and say, right. "What the hell is going on How with do my I map?" Do this, yeah, no, exactly. yeah. No. And uh, you know, they walk me through more complicated. Yeah. I mean, I will say in terms of the GIS that the spatial analysis in this book is not by any measure sophisticated spatial analysis. Uh-huh. I mean, you can do things with GIS and current data, which is very rich. Uh-huh. Um, that is really quite amazing. Yeah. No. Um, I mean, yeah. Where you're basically drawing your own shapes based on, uh, you know, criteria like you know carbon emissions or yeah, segregation sure. indices sure. or that sort of thing. Basically, what I do is I just sort of plugged existing data and existing shapes like census tracts, mm-hmm. urban renewal zones, uh, onto the map. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 in that sense it's old fashioned map making mm-hmm. um, with new technology. Well, I think it came out very well though. I, I usually tell people when I, and I have very limited uh, experience with this sort of thing, but I mean it really is in its simplest sense nothing more than taking a table of data like you find in a spreadsheet and then mapping it. It's it's uh, usually the correspondence is pretty clear. And I would also say about the learning curve, which is a little bit steep at the beginning. Once you actually see your first map, you you have a table and you actually get it mapped. That is a great incentive to go on because you see right. it for the first time and you're just like that's incredible. And it doesn't yeah. just algorithmically just boom there it produces this multicolor map just like that. And you're like yes I yeah, I want to do more of this. At least that was my experience when I was doing it for the purposes of um, selling people magazines actually in my case. Yeah. <laughs> well we take I mean, let me, yeah go ahead. Let me give you an example of a simple way in which I think this works in a very compelling the mapping works in a very uh-huh. compelling way. Yeah. Um, I found in the archives uh, what urban renewal uh, people call a relocation ledger, uh-huh. which is a, a list of 100 families, in, a, in this case from a small African-American community in St. Louis County, mm-hmm. and where they went when their homes were knocked down by the bulldozer. Mm-hmm. And what, what, you, what you tend to do when you're familiar with GIS is you, you have your antenna up for spatial information in the archives. Mm-hmm. So here I had pages and pages of addresses. Mm-hmm. And so what I did is I put these on a map, mm-hmm. And including, you know, color coding as to whether they were renting or owning or living with family. Mm-hmm. And then pulled census data up underneath that mm-hmm. and could show, you know, very dramatically that, in fact, in this pocket of St. Louis County, all the African-American families were uh, pushed out by the bulldozer. Mm-hmm. And they all moved into already deeply segregated tracks yeah. in the city. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, that's a And so, yeah. you know, so it's often not, you know, big demographic data that you're working with, but often just a list of addresses. No, I see. Um, yeah. 
And a map of that is so much more compelling than saying, yes, well, most of them moved into already segregated areas. Right. I mean, that's a pretty right. plain style sentence. And you might fall asleep during it. But if you see that map, right. you're just like, oh, my God, look, he's right. That's incredible. I can just look at it and see the dispersion pattern, and, and there it is, as plain as day. Yeah. Now, I, I find that stuff extraordinarily compelling. And as I say, it's, this stuff has been used in marketing departments forever. Uh, but uh, I think it's coming. I hope it's coming to uh, history departments everywhere. And we should thank you for uh, helping um, bring it to history departments everywhere. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I have one final question for you. Uh, what are you working on now? Well, actually, uh, what I'm working on is uh, I'm doing a sort of smaller uh, project that that spins off the, the uh, episode that we just talked about, about this the um, destruction of this small African-American community. Uh-huh. I became very interested in more broadly the problem of um, eminent domain and relocation of displaced people uh-huh. in the context of urban renewal. Uh-huh. And is that a book-length um, project or is it articles? Or? Yeah, book-length, I think. I mean... I don't know if you remember from two years ago the Kelo case in the Supreme Court. No, I don't. Uh, this was the case of a little old lady in New London, Connecticut, who was being kicked out of her home because they wanted to put up, you know, fancy condos. Oh yes, I do remember this now. Yes, the eminent domain. Right. And, and it was a big flap, and it was an interesting flap because it united left and right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have property rights absolutists on one side saying this is awful. And you have, you know, social welfare good government liberals also saying, you know, you really shouldn't be taking ordinary people's homes and giving them to pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, they're also united by what has become, you know, a very widespread conviction that urban renewal as practiced in this country is in direct violation of the takings clause of the Constitution, uh-huh. which seems to state quite clearly that you cannot take one person's property and give it to someone else. Right. It's supposed to be for a public use, right? right. Uh-huh. Right. So anyway, what interested me about the Kilo case was that there was such a flap about it, mm-hmm. um, but that there was absolutely no historical perspective yeah. to the effect that this was one little old white lady losing her house. Yeah. Well, this was done routinely to yeah. entire towns of African Americans. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, you know, on a scale far exceeding what's done today. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. That's a good point. And so the idea is to, to trace as much as I can the development of this community, um, the decision to um, to raise it, um, and uh, the consequences for the people who live there. Yeah, well, it sounds like a fascinating project, and we really look forward to it. We'll uh, have you on again when... Um when you publish that, and you can explain to us exactly something, an anecdote you've told me about how, you're, um, about how you speak Marxism. I hope we get that, that comes up next time. You know, about how you are what? You speak Marxism. Ah, yeah, yes, my, my right. second language. Yeah, your second language, Marxism. But we'll, we'll get into that when, that when this next book comes out. Well, um, Colin Gordon, thank you very much for being with us today. We really appreciated it. Thank you, Marshall. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Colin Gordon of the Department of History at the University of Iowa, an interview about his new book, Mapping Decline, St. Louis and the Fate of the American City. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and we hope to talk to you next week. Take care.